Yeah, amen. Thank you, Jonathan, for sharing that. And it is indeed a question that we should ask ourselves quite often. When the world looks at me, what do they see? When the world looks at us, what do they see? And uh, I think a lot of times we're good at hiding our true selves. We're good at hiding behind other motives, uh, ulterior motives and different things. But uh, it seems like in the end, the truth does come out who we really are deep down. <clears throat> and it is indeed a transitioning process. Um, any way you slice it, if we are indeed disciples of Christ, and uh, if we are indeed his sons and daughters, he will not leave us where we're at. And uh, I've been reminded of that in my journey, that uh, God will continue to show the areas of uh, where we are weak, the areas where we fail. And he will work out those things so that we go from glory to glory. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. That's, that, is, that is definitely what we want in our lives. Um, I guess what I, my message that I want to bring out is more in line uh, with uh, what you could say what uh, we're facing, especially again, my wife and I and... Um, I guess it's just been on my heart. It's it's heavy on my heart. Um, I felt that uh, this is what I can speak on best at this time. The experiences that we are going through, the things that we are facing, and the questions that we have. Um, I know my the last opening that I had was was. Uh, in that line, and uh, my, uh, probably my last message that I had was also along those lines. But uh, <clears throat> I found at times, especially as we as we're facing this this trial, I seem to to despair um, with what is in front of me at the time and what I'm facing. And I know it's not what God wants. Because that despair, it kind of, it leads to a depression. It leads to a loss of joy and peace, you could say. And... Uh, I know as you look through the word, especially the Old Testament there, you can find people that have despaired. Uh, in, in different ways. Despaired in different situations and in different ways. But uh, when you think of Jonah, and we all know what he despaired in, well... His was totally selfish, but it's, it's mostly based on selfishness, if you look at it. 
It is, it is missing the bigger picture. And uh, so that's basically where I'm at. I titled uh, my message, Where Are You, Lord? I know it's a strange title, but uh, I think you'll, you'll understand it more as we get into it. So before we begin, let's pause for a word of prayer. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, just want to thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, that you're not finished with us. As we've heard even already this morning that we are being transitioned from glory to glory and that the things that we face in this life are the very things, Lord, that are transitioning our, our faith to a deeper and de- in a deeper and deeper way, even as a tree grows, Father. And uh, from a young sapling into a strong tree, Father, that has its roots deep into the earth. Even so, Lord, our faith in you grows deeper and deeper as we face trials and tests of various kinds. And Lord, through it all, help us not to lose hope and to fall into despair. For we know, Lord, that ultimately despair and depression lead to a dark place where sometimes we cannot even come out of. So we just want to pray, Father, for your presence, and we do thank you for your presence with us. And we just uh, thank you, Lord, for your work and your life within us. Thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by reading a, a testimony here from a lady that, uh, that I read, and it really resonated with me. Her name is Sarah Walton. She's a wife and mother who's going through various trials of her own. And it just uh, <clears throat> caused me to connect with her because of it. a lot of it is what, what I feel at times. The things, and I'm sure you can connect, you will connect with her also um, with what some of the things that you're going through in your life. She begins by saying, I'm weary, body, mind, and soul, weary of waiting, weary of fighting for joy, weary of hoping for better days. If I'm honest, a sense of despair has increasingly clouded my view of life and left me wondering if the darkness will ever lift. God's word says that we are perplexed, but not led to despair. Why then do I feel such a deep sense of despair? It's now been a decade of navigating devastating neurological and physical illness in our family of six, along with financial stress brought on by ongoing medical costs. It's been a season of grief and loss that my husband and I could never have anticipated when we took our vows. However, as much as the major losses in life have caused a deep wrestling in my faith, it's the little disappointments and struggles that often seem to be the final blows to my weary heart. 
Sometimes, no matter how hard I fight for truth and try to push back the lies that constantly bombard my thoughts, despair seems to slowly seep in, distorting truth and clouding my perspective. I have come to learn that while there are seasons of suffering, when we wonderfully sense the presence of Christ infusing us with joy and peace in the midst of raging storms, we also walk through seasons when it feels as if the darkness is closing in on us, creating confusion, doubt, and despondency. We cry out to our Lord, but he seems silent. We plead for relief, but the pain only intensifies. Suddenly, the God we thought we knew feels at odds with what our circumstances tell us. Where are we to find the hope and motivation to press on when in an earthly sense we despair of life itself? And she has a quote here that she has. She says, I trust that Jesus is using the circumstances that tempt me to despair to ultimately give me greater life in him. She continues by saying, what despair is and isn't. Some losses make us feel burdened beyond what we can bear. The Apostle Paul, for instance, was no stranger to dark days. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, he says, We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raised the dead, raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. How can Paul say that he despaired of life when only three chapters later he says that we are perplexed but not driven to despair? Although he despaired of life, even to the point of death, it brought about a greater purpose of relying solely upon Christ. Paul knew that ultimately his earthly despair could never destroy his promised eternity. Paul knew that we need never truly despair in the deepest and truest sense of the word. While we can acknowledge our earthly temptation to despair, and give ourselves time to grieve the loss and pain we've experienced, we choose to press on in the hope that we will ultimately be delivered, if not in this life, then in the one to come. We fight for hope today because no earthly despair will ever be greater than our hope that we have in Christ. And in his future, or in his, you could say his future glory. In God's mercy, he brings us to the end of ourselves and teaches us to count our losses as eternal gain. It's very hard to read that, but I guess that's ultimately the truth. He brings us to the end of ourselves and teaches us to count our losses as eternal gain. Fight for truth. 
Second Corinthians 4, 16 to 18 says, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Death to our outer selves is excruciating at times. Fighting through chronic pain each day is exhausting. Watching my children battle sickness and struggle to make sense of this broken world can be heart-wrenching. And having to stop myself from chasing after my children in fear of losing my ability to walk because of a degenerating ankle bone causes me to grieve the life I always imagined I would have. And yet, despite how much pain they've caused, these losses have brought a deeper understanding of the gospel, a growing eternal perspective, and a greater willingness to live radically for the sake of following Christ. I have one race to run, and only by the grace of God I will run it well. Therefore, I can trust that Jesus Christ, the founder and perfecter of my faith, is using the very circumstances that tempt me to despair to ultimately give me greater life in him. In his mercy, he brings me to the end of myself and teaches me to count these losses as eternal gain. He fills those empty and hurting places with more of himself. In his strength and with his promises, I can run with endurance as I fix my eyes on the prize of the glorious eternity. I run longing to be in the presence of my Savior, free from sin and suffering. And I guess we all know these verses. that no pain, loss, or suffering will ever separate us from the love of Christ. What the enemy intends for evil, we can be confident God will use to accomplish his good and loving purposes. For the believer, God allows us to work through our feelings of despair that we might be stripped of our love for the world and every attempt to make it our home. In the process, while our outer selves waste away, our inner selves are being renewed day by day, giving us a greater love for Christ, which is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It is basically fixing our eyes on Christ, no matter what our circumstances show us. And I appreciate what she said here, that ultimately it is a stripping process. It is a, it is a, a transitioning process. It is bringing out those sins in us that we might not otherwise see or deal with. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And uh, suffering teaches us that our greatest problem is not our circumstances, but the sin still hidden in our hearts. And I, as, I, as I read this, I thought, Lord, is that true? 
Is this, is this where it's at? Suffering teaches us that our greatest problem is not our circumstances, but the sin still hidden in our hearts. And I guess at the end of the day, that's where it's at. I guess uh, I think a lot of times, um, how else will we listen? How else will we hear? It's kind of like uh, in the Old Testament when when God sent uh, or when God sent prophets to the people. Did they listen? When God sent his word, most of the time they didn't listen. They just kept on going with what they were doing until God finally had to bring in, had to bring in, uh, you could say, trials and tests. And then they cried out to the Lord. And uh, it's hard to, to really look at that and say, is this the case in my life? But it has to be asked. I want to read Second Corinthians 4, 7 to 18. It says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So ultimately, that's where we have to focus. It's hard to read through this, but it's also a comfort to read that uh, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. But I find that as times, as, as our journey goes on, especially in my own life, there are times when I'm very encouraged by what I read, I feel that it's it's a, a word that God has directly given to me, and it's so encouraging and uplifting. It brings joy and peace. 
But then when you start focusing again on what's what you see around you, what you're experiencing, when things don't change the way that you feel they should change, you start to despair again. And I just, I haven't found a key to just uh, always keep a steady abiding faith in Christ, no matter what your circumstances are around you. It seems like I'm shaken a lot by even little things, like she said here. It's those little things that, that shake you the most, it seems like. It's like I said, some days I'm tremendously encouraged and hopeful, and some days are just very rough mentally and physically. And when people ask me how I'm doing, I sometimes respond, some days are sunny, some days are cloudy and overcast, and some days are downright stormy. I think we'll have that. It doesn't really matter who you are. You'll have that. But... There's one thing that I question about myself when I sense that I'm getting weary and facing despair and depression because of my circumstances that I'm in. I ask myself, Samuel, are you sure that the reason for your despair and depression is not because of self-pity? Self-pity is not a good thing. It doesn't benefit you in any way. And you ask yourself, are you sure that your unthankfulness and despair, depression is not because of self-pity? Self-pity is an excessive self-absorbed unhappiness over one's own troubles. Self-pity is a disagreement with God over how life and even how he has treated us. It is a kind of pride, a kind of worship of ourselves and our comforts, and being angry that we have not received the kind of treatment or blessings or whatever it is that we felt we should have. It can also be an attitude of, Lord, why are you doing this to me? Haven't I served you faithfully these many years? Why, Lord? Why me? Why my family? It's a subtle sin. We often don't recognize it right away because it wears the disguise of righteous indignation. We feel justified to indulge in it after the injustice we suffered, even if all that happened was that we just didn't get our way. Self-pity is a dangerous, deceitful, heart-hardening sin. It steals our peace and joy in the Lord. It smothers out love and compassion, robbing us of the desire to serve others. Self-pity is a feeder sin, encouraging us to comfort our poor selves with all manner of sinful indulgence like gossip, slander, gluttony, substance abuse, and binge entertainment, just to name a few. And we were talking about this a little bit in our discipleship group. It's the idea of, I deserve to kick back and unwind with a little me time because I've had such a difficult day. 
my boss was mean to me, or my wife said something to me that was not honoring the way that I thought she should have honored me. I've been mistreated, so I deserve this. That's self-pity. You can't put it any other way. It's just pitying your circumstances and what you have to face and go through, and you're completely missing the the picture, the bigger picture. Self-pity poisons our relationships and is often the underlying cause of our burnout. At the root of self-pity is our reluctance to admit that we are sinners who need to be chastened. If we recognized our sins and mistakes, we would be grateful when God begins to deal with them, when he judges and chastens us, even though it might hurt. Instead of pitying ourselves and complaining, we would only find that what we have to suffer in a way of chastening is much too little. Those who pity themselves do not have the right attitudes towards sin. Although they do not realize that they cannot admit their sin. When they get into trouble, they accuse God instead of themselves, and thus they set up a barrier against God. Those who pity themselves do not act according to the words of Scripture. Strive for the holiness, for without holiness no one will see the Lord. And the only winner in that is Satan. He's the one that is standing behind us, laughing scornfully when we complain and pity ourselves. For he has attained his goal. We have fallen prey to an idol, which is our own egos. Satan knows that self-pity furthers every other sin and therefore is a triumph for him. And with that, I have to say at times I fall prey to this. The despair and the depression that creep in, I just... I'm there. I feel, why me, Lord? Why do I have to go through this? But the consequences of self-pity is an unrealistic view of the situation, an exaggerated view of the situation, self-sabotage in indulging. Self-pity often lengthens the duration of the trial. It damages your testimony, and God is not glorified through your life. Well, what's the remedy of self-pity? It's simply emphasize gratitude in your life. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So the things that we face... You could say, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Realizing that God is the one working behind the scenes to bring about his will in our lives. And sometimes on those stormy days, we wrestle with the question, where are you, Lord? Do you really see and care about my circumstances and difficulties? If you do, 
Why don't I see more changes in my circumstance? Where are you, Lord? Especially so in a season where things have turned upside down. Big plans have changed. Things you've counted on have been lost. It's disorienting, all this fear and uncertainty replacing so much that was stable. It's an involuntary entrance into the wilderness where the familiar is obscured and the other side seems so far off. Why did God let this happen in my life? I want to read another story and then go into something else. It's written by Ellen Shearhouse. He wrote this. He said, I met J.R. when I was a counselor at Camp Barnabas, a camp that exists to provide the encouragement and adventure of a camp experience to children living with disabilities. J.R. was a 16-year-old camper, was a Camp Barnabas legend, admired for his humor and enthusiasm and overall charm. So I was thrilled when I learned he was one of the eight campers that ended up in my co-counselors and my cabin that week. Most of all, J.R. was admired for his deep faith and the trust he seemed to have that God was with him, even amidst his challenges. He would share this with the camp each year on storytelling night, telling the camp how he was eight years old when he and his mom went out for groceries and how the other driver had been drinking. And from that point on, he had lost the use of his legs and used a wheelchair to get around. This year was no different. J.R. shared his testimony, and everyone seemed so moved and encouraged. Later that night, around the campfire and the s'mores and the songs, when everything began to settle and the sounds of the Ozarks began to lull us to sleep, I walked around the cabin for a final bed check. That's when J.R.'s hand reached out and grabbed, grabbed me by my arm as I walked past. It startled me, but I leaned down as he pulled himself up and said to me, and it was only a whisper, Alan, why did God let this happen to me? Why? If God loves us so much, if God can do so much, if God can control so much, why does God's creation suffer so much? If God is good and God is powerful, why? JR's question is my question, is your question. It's a question we ask in the dark sometimes, a 2 a.m. question, my theology professor used to call it. And even the strongest, most faithful, the most compelling testimony of faith among us is bound to ask it. Why? That phrasing, let, it, let, this, let this happen, itself might hold some beginning of an answer. It assumes that God doesn't cause all to happen, but sets into motion a world that in its freedom can turn violent, irresponsible, and dangerous. And amidst it all, God does the most that can possibly be done to bring about the good. Romans 8.28 says, All things work together for good says the most common translation. But another way to translate the verse is that all, in all things, God works for the good. 
There seems to be no answer that we really accept as final. Sometimes things happen. Sometimes people get injured. Sometimes people get sick. Sometimes life is so unforgiving and unfair. Sometimes people even die when we want them to live long and full and healthy lives. But in it, in all things, God works for the good. I want to go through John chapter 11, 17 to uh, 30, 44. It says, uh, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had also Come with her, also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he have opened the eyes? Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. I think maybe quite a few of us could relate to Martha here. Imagine if you were Martha. You knew that Jesus 
is your friend and that he loves you. He loves your sister and your brother. And he enjoys spending time in your home. That's what it says in, in John eleven five. It says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And yet one day, her brother, Lazarus, falls very ill. She sends word to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Was this news to Jesus? No, he knew it. He knew that Lazarus was ill. And that is indeed a comfort to us to know that Christ is intimately acquainted with every detail about our conditions. It's not a question then no longer is, Lord, do you see? Do you know? Do you understand? No, he knew, he knew that Lazarus was ill. But picture Martha. She had sent out word for Christ to come, and yet he did not come. Picture her watching Lazarus getting weaker and weaker each day as the illness takes its toll on him. Picture her sleepless nights of worry and whispering in the dark, Why, Lord, why do you not come and heal my brother? During those days of Lazarus' illness, what response do you think she received? I believe she received nothing but silence. And ultimately, Lazarus dies, and now the two sisters have to go through the process of burying their brother. And all the while, I'm sure, still wrestling with the thoughts of, Why, Lord, why did you not come? They finally hear four days after Lazarus' death that Jesus is on his way to their home. Martha left her home and went to meet him. And basically she tells Jesus, Jesus, where were you? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus, where were you? You know, is it okay to ask that question? Jesus, where were you? I think it is because you think about it. Even Jesus asked it. On the cross, he said, Father, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus, where were you? The grieving sister asks it with us all. Not why did this happen, but where were you, Jesus? It's a different question. And this is the question that we see answered again and again in the story of the compassionate God who is with us in our suffering. We like to emphasize that God is so powerful and strong and immovable. Only a powerful, composed God can change things, some would claim. Dietrich Bonhoeffer saw it differently. Writing from the tragedy and suffering of Nazi Germany, Bonhoeffer once claimed only a suffering God can help. It's the God who in Christ came near to the suffering of this world. The God who never steps away, but is always drawn toward us. The one who in Jesus looks on our world, looks on it and says, let me go there. 
And so Jesus comes to Lazarus because where suffering is, there you will find him. Notice what happens. First, Jesus weeps for him, suffering right along with Martha and all those around. Second, Jesus calls to him within his, when, within his tomb, reminding that the good shepherd knows his sheep by name and will always come to find us, even out beyond what we can know and understand. Then thirdly, Jesus invites the community to unbind him and set him free. He senses that this suffering has been felt by those around and that they need to be part of Lazarus's liberation and new life. He could have untied Lazarus's grave clothes or dropped them with a word, but he seems to know that those around need to be part of the miracle. They need to experience a part of the new life in their midst. They need to know that they themselves can be a part of the answer to Martha's question, which was really the question at the heart of them all. So Jesus says to all those around, you unbind him, set him free. In other words, I've heard an answer to Martha's question. Where are you, Lord? We ask. And the one who makes his way to each of us stands among us now to say, I am already there. I'm already there. And he was. There was nothing about this story that he didn't know. So, in the same way, there's nothing in our story that he doesn't know. He's intimately acquainted with everything, even before we send word. He's already there. Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. I heard this quote in a song says, though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stall, yet would I rejoice. I have often wondered why a loving God would permit suffering, why he is silent in my pain. Why does he take so much from me? I desired a greater purpose, but God allowed greater pain. I asked for more comfort, but he gave me a cross. But then I remember that Jesus' greatest brokenness offered the greatest healing to all of mankind. 
God never intended for us to suffer, yet because of the evil in this world, each of us are touched by pain. Only a redeeming Savior can take the greatest heap of ashes and use it to fertilize our souls. And he whispers, my child, you don't have to be good enough, strong enough, or healed enough. Just praise me, because I am enough. So in closing, I guess there's all things we have to struggle through. One thing we know, God is always right. God is always good. And God never lies. And he always keeps his promises. It may not be exactly the way that we think it should be. But it is true. Psalms 138.8 The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Isaiah 26, 3 and 4, in closing, You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. We will have our days. There's the questions, the why, where are you, Lord? I'm going to be there, but I'm just blessed by that that statement. I'm already there. And it may not go the way that we think it should go, but in the end, he will work out everything to the good to those that love him. So, God bless you.